Morning, everyone. Well, we are in the thick of the book of Judges, and um, I just want to uh, just let you know that in chapters one and two of the book of Judges, they're, they're not summary chapters, but they're sort of building chapters. So they're kind of giving us a lot of historical information for what happens in chapter three and following. Uh, so we're going to end up talking about Joshua next week in the book of Judges, even though by the time Judges 1, chapter 1 happens, Joshua's already passed away. Uh, so we're going to, it's kind of a nice thrust into why Israel got into the trouble that they did from chapters 1 and 2. And the rest of the book kind of talks about all those trials and difficulties that they face. And if we remember the great theme of Judges, focusing on godly leadership when it is lacking in a person's life, whether it's your own godliness or in a family or in a city or in a nation, when there is a lack of godly leadership, people tend to live for themselves, make their own decisions, determine what is truth on their own, and their actions and attitudes drastically slip into compromise. And when there is compromise before God, God's people suffer greatly from sin. And we are going to see that building up today into the next few weeks, why they got into the trouble that they did. And I realize that as we start talking about the book of Judges, um, everything that happens in the book of Judges is predicated based upon God's conversation that he had with Abraham back in Genesis 12. So we're going to turn to Genesis 12, first of all, and we are going to see this connection that Abraham has to the land of Israel itself. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12, just read through the first few verses there, uh, starting in verse 1. And this is building up into the book of Judges. The Lord said to Abram, this is before Abraham had his name changed, to the father of many sons, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then this beautiful promise from God to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Side note, we are part of that blessing. We have been blessed, given the gospel, given an understanding of Christ, through this promise God made to Abraham. So if there was no Abraham, we would have gotten the gospel message a different way. But God used Abraham even to bring us into that blessing of that family. And so Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Um, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haram, and they set out for a country in the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Do you remember how the land of Canaan and the Canaanites came about from last week? Canaan was a son of Ham, who was the son of what famous character that built a boat? Noah. And Ham and Canaan did evil in God's eyes, so they were cursed, and they became the mortal enemies of Israel. So they, Abraham was taken to the land of Canaan, and in verse 6 it says, Canaan traveled through the land as far as sight, as far as the site of the great tree of Morah in Shechem. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. 
So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him and worshipped. And from there he moved forward east to Bethel, pitched a tent there, and at Bethel he went on to Ai to the east, and he built an altar to the Lord there and called upon the name of the Lord. And then the, Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev. So in that short seven or eight verses in Genesis 12, God sets the promise to Abraham that I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you this land as far as the eye can see. And so Abraham was standing upon a mountain area that looked upon the valley of Israel, what we have today as Israel. So that was the promise that God would make Abraham a great people and give them a land. And so it took hundreds of years to get to that point, but now through the book of Judges and Joshua beforehand, they are now entering into the promised land and they are going gangbusters. They are doing exactly what God had promised, even though it happened four to, well, more like six to seven hundred years after that promise was made. We pick up in the book of Judges, starting in verse 8. Judges chapter 1, verse 8 is where we pick it up and we see Judah's conquest taking place. And if you remember from last week, uh, Judah went to Simeon, his brother, and said, hey, let's work together and gain this land for ourselves. And so they did just that. In verse 8 it says, the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and took it, and they put the city to the sword and set it on fire. So they were pretty victorious in one of their first battles. First of all, the first battle was Jericho that they overcame. But now they went to Jerusalem, the city of peace. That's what the word Jerusalem means, the city of peace kind of not living up to his name at this moment because Judah and his tribe walk in and, and take it over through fire and sword, but they win the battle. They take Jerusalem as their city. That doesn't mean they controlled Jerusalem. They just beat Jerusalem and now said, this is where our flag is standing. They still have a lot of problems in Jerusalem, as we'll see later on in the chapter. Verse 9, after that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. I realized early on as I'm reading through the book of Judges, and this is not unique to the book of Judges, but it happens throughout all the Old Testament, they start using all these names, all these places. And you look back on your, some Bibles um, have a concordance with maps at the back of it. You obviously have those online as well, but I thought I would give us a little heads up and help us remember where these places are at. So in your mind, and, and hopefully we'll have a, a map for you at some point that actually makes it visual on our screen, but for now I want you to think of Pueblo, the north and south, the east and west of Pueblo, and we're going to superimpose the nation of Israel on top of it, with Calvary being Jerusalem. So when he says they went to the Negev, that basically meant they went way down south, like towards Canyon City. Okay, so if we're in Jerusalem and we go way down south to, that is Canyon City down there, right? No, what I mean is they went way down south to Colorado City. All right, now I'm getting, before I got some puzzled looks. Colorado City. So anytime Negev comes up, just think of all that land towards Colorado City. All right, yeah, I know Canyon City's out west, but... That, okay, so when we talk about the Negev, we're talking about way south, Colorado City. When we're talking about the Mediterranean Sea, we're basically talking about Pueblo West. No one lives there. It's just a sea. 
When we talk about the north, we can kind of think of uh, um, Colorado Springs. I really should have written all this down. We're talking about Colorado Springs, which would be modern-day Turkey, and I think that's pretty fitting, modern-day Turkey. So anything north is modern-day Turkey, and that's kind of Colorado Springs. Out east, and I know we have people that live there and love that area, but that's basically Iran and Iraq. Okay, anything east of 25, Israel said is a bad thing. So, so 25 is basically the Jordan River, all right? So when you talk east of the Jordan River or east of 25, that's an area of town Israel's not really supposed to go into often because it's kind of rough. It's rough and tumble. It's kind of, it's desert. And it's basically modern-day Iraq, Iran, and all those Afghanistan type of things out there. So... They go and attack Jerusalem, which is Calvary, and they win. They're victorious, but they don't get all of it. There's still some hotbeds of resistance there. And then they go down south to Colorado City to kind of take over that area of town. That's what's happening in verse 8 and 9. And so they go into the Negev, the western foothills, and they advance against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kirith Arab, and defeated Shishiah, Ahiam, and Talmai. Those are three brothers. And from there they advanced against the people of Debir, formerly called Kirith Safir. Now, all of that area is pretty much, uh, you know, where northern and uh, prairie connect. You know, down in that area where there's a Lowe's there and a, a small Walmart kind of that area all the way down to Stem Beach. That's kind of the area that they're talking about from this location, Jerusalem. Is this helping at all? Kind of say, okay, I, I, it helped me in my mind, and then as I'm saying it, I'm hoping I don't confuse Colorado City and Canyon City, because uh, they're opposite ends of the map. Uh, so they're kind of conquesting everything down in that area of Israel right now. This is Judah, because that's the land that Judah was given. That's their homeland. That's their tribal land, along with Simeon, which is kind of just a circle within that area. So they're down there attacking, and they're having great success, verse 9, 10, and 11. Then comes a side story, a personal story, because so far we've just seen armies conquering things. Now we have a personal story about Caleb. Now, Caleb and Joshua were the one of the, or two of the spies that came back with a good report. They were allowed to go into the promised land because they were the only ones that believed God would give it to them, even though it felt like there were giants living here. Caleb is still alive. Caleb is an old man at this point. And Caleb said in verse 12, I will give my daughter, Akasha, in marriage to the man who attacks and captures uh, Kiriath, Saphir, Othnel, and I'm going to let you read between the lines here. Pay attention to who these people are. We have Caleb, says, I'm going to give my daughter to the man who takes on and wins this battle and takes this city. So, Othnel, son of Kenaz, uh, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksha to him in marriage. Are we following that? Caleb says, anyone who takes this land, I'm going to give my daughter. And so 
Caleb's nephew says, Woo, I'm going to take it. Takes it, and then they're married. They're first cousins. Different time back then. Different time back then. But, okay, so the first cousins get married. Super excited because Caleb gets the property, gets the city. And again, that's down south. That's kind of, that's, um, think of it in the area. There's a lake down here, Lake Minna, I want to say Minnesota, but it's not Minnesota. Lake Minnewaka. Minnewaka. All together, Lake. Fantastic. That's where the city basically was. And Caleb says, anyone who takes it gets my daughter. His nephew says, yes, I'll do it. And they get married. And Caleb gets his city and is able to marry off his daughter. They did it differently back then. And so one day, verse 14, because the story continues, one day uh, she came to Othnel and she urged him, ask, her, urged him to ask her father for a field. And so when she got off the donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? So the scenario is she needs more land, wants more security, and so tries to tell her husband, her cousin, who is her husband, go ask dad, your uncle, if we can have some more fields and property just to make sure that our family is set and secured for the future. And so she's arriving to wherever Caleb was living, and she gets off the donkey and Dad's first question is, hey, honey, what can I do for you? Originally, she wanted her husband, Caleb's nephew, their cousins, to ask him. Okay, ask for more stuff. Ask Dad for more stuff. Um, he doesn't. Instead, she does. And she replies in verse 15, do me a special favor. And any time your daughter comes to you and says, can you do a special favor for me? As a dad, doesn't your heart just kind of, it totally melts. And it, it, you are total putty. And you go, yes, what? And, and so he's already primed and ready to help her out and to help her family out any way he can. What, can you do a special favor for me? You can almost hear that whining. I think the whining is an American thing. I don't think they had that back then. I don't think they whined at all. But you can almost hear it. Can you do me a special favor? Since you've given me the land of the Negev, which is all that area from the south of Pueblo all the way kind of down towards Colorado City, uh, since you've given me all that land, can you also give me springs of water? I mean, you've given me all the land, and it's a pretty arid place. Can you give me the lakes? And, and even further south um, from Lake Minnewaka, uh, <laughs> There are, like, I've seen from the road, from 25, there's two other, like, big bodies of water, and I think they're part of the reservoir system, right? Past Stem Beach or near Stem Beach, out in that area, I think there's, like, some bodies of water that I see that's not that lake, and I know it's not the reservoir, so there's other water out there. So she's basically saying, Dad, you gave me all this land, and thank you very much, but we also need water. And Caleb goes, well, yes. Of course. I will give you the upper and lower springs. You get the best of the water running off the mountaintops. It's all for you, dear. And so that's just kind of a little side story about the Lion of God, which is what Othnel 
means. Now, Othniel becomes, and I don't want to spoil it, but you may already know, in chapter 3, he's one of the first judges that come on the scene and says, Israel, you got to get back to worshiping God and God alone. Enough compromise. He's the first godly leader that shows up on the stage and says, we're taking back our faith from the foreigners that have stayed with us and compromised our faith. Now, side note, there's a lot of side notes here in this message. Side note, anytime you have that two letters, E-L, in English, translated from the Hebrew, like L, like Othanel, it usually refers to the word God. God. So Othanel, the lion of God. And so um, that's going to happen a lot of times as you're reading named El Shaddai, the name of God, as well as like um, Bethel or Bethel, that is the city of God. And so anytime that L shows up, it's a good clue, okay, this has some relationship to God's story of revealing himself to the nations, to us. So Othnel, the future lion of God, is on the war path, already has a wife, which is his cousin, and they are, are possessors of an incredible amount of property. Caleb is part of the tribe of Judah. So all of that land, they started dividing it up into individual families, and he got a huge portion because he was a major, major army general within the nation of Israel, taking into the promised land. So they're set. They're set. And now we have some further conquests and some setbacks taking place pretty much the rest of the chapter up through verse 26, which we're covering today. So starting in verse 16, we have several things happening here. Uh, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, whose name was Jethro, uh, who was a Kenite, came up from the city of Palms, which is Jericho. Jericho is basically the intersection from Calvary of Abriando and 25. Everyone knows that interchange or that intersection getting onto 25 on and off there. So think of that. From here, that's basically where Jericho is. So Jethro came from Jericho. That's where he came from. His family was born and raised there. And, and uh, Moses married Jethro's daughter. And so the descendants of Jethro went back to the city of Palms, that is Jericho, because they had already gained it in victory with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah uh, in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah, verse 17, went with the Simeonites. Remember, the Simeonites and, and uh, the tribe of Judah made this agreement. We're going to take all this land south of Jerusalem for ourselves in victory. We're going to work together. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites and the fellow Israelites and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Now, Hormah means basically really bad destruction, like, like a nuclear holocaust type of destruction. And it, it's the most destructive, it's, it's a word in Hebrew that means really, really, really badly destroyed and hurt. It, it's the strongest word in Hebrew to mean destruction. So it was this city, but now they named it this city, which was just terribly destroyed. That area that they're talking about is basically that area just next to and south of the reservoir. 
So if you know the southern edge of the reservoir, that's kind of the area right next to the Mediterranean Sea that they were fighting. So they're no longer fighting south, but they're also fighting a little bit west, right along the edge of where the Gaza Strip is today, right next to the Mediterranean Sea. So they're there fighting. They take a major city. They change the name of the city, and it tells us in verse 18 that Judah also took Gaza, Eshkalon, and Erkan, um, each city with its territory, where all those cities were right next to the Mediterranean Sea, which would be like lining right next to the reservoir, the south and east side of the reservoir. And we're given a little clue about why, in verse 19, they were so successful so far. It says, the Lord was with the men of Judah. And when the Lord is with you, who can stand against you? No one. Because it's not you fighting. You're not doing it in your own strength. You're not doing it with your own reserve, with your own resolve, with your own wisdom, with your own abilities. God is at the forefront. He's not just at the forefront, but he's also in your midst and he's behind you and around you, and it is a beautiful, content, peaceful place to be when the Lord is with you. And the Lord is with you when you are accomplishing God's work. You can always have that promise that the Lord is with you when you are accomplishing and focused on fulfilling his work. If you're going in the opposite direction of God, you don't have that promise. And there's no surprise then when you don't have the peace and the joy that goes along walking in this life. So when you're lacking peace and joy, like we saw last week, one of the best things to do is reevaluate, am I walking with God or against God? Walking with God is a beautiful, safe, peaceful, content place to be as opposed to walking against God. So we're told in that verse 19 that the Lord was with, with the men of Judah and they took possession of the hill country but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. When you're going up and down uh, Pueblo Boulevard and you are north of the Arkansas River, so you've, you've crossed the overpass, over on the east, or over on the west side, there's those, you, you can see Liberty Point, you can see the mountains, and there's a, a makeshift dirt track racing Area. That whole area just is filled with people with dirt bikes and four-wheelers and trucks doing up and down on dirt. And that is pretty much the area that Judah was trying to take over. And wow, they were tough because they had chariots, but not just ordinary chariots that had horses. When you had horses, it basically meant you had tanks. And when you had chariots, it was, these are tanks on steroids. And we're told that these tanks were like really big tanks because they were made out of iron. It's really tough with bows and arrows and slingshots and spears that may not even just be sharpened pointed sticks. Really tough to come against someone that had iron. And so as Judah tried to take some of that land between the reservoir and the city, they realize this is really tough here. It, it, it's super hard to get through. They, are, they have the advantage of being on the hill and fighting down, which is tough to overcome in any military situation. But they tried. They really, really tried. But, but these people were just very good at fighting. Verse 20, as Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, which, remember, is kind of down near northern and um, prairie. 
and uh, drove the three sons from Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites, who were related to the Canaanites. They're all related, related to the Canaanites, uh, who were living in Jerusalem to this day. The Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Um, Benjamin was given pretty much the promise of Jerusalem and a little bit further north, maybe all the way to Forth or Lincoln or Thatcher, whatever that is, that little area. They were a small tribe, and they were just given a small amount of land, but they got Jerusalem, which was the capital, which was a very important part. But as they were occupying Jerusalem, which, remember, they had already gained in victory, yet there were just some pockets of neighborhoods that were uncontrollable, and they weren't able to root out all the Jebusites from that area. So you can kind of imagine maybe two or three neighborhoods or, or blocks over there uh, by sunset, just kind of, we, they weren't able to simply make theirs. There were rival gangs always causing a little bit of frustration. But they did real well, just not the best they could do. There was more for them to drive out. Picking up in verse 22. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, which means the house of God, and the Lord was with them. Now Bethel would have been, oh, uh, pretty much where the zoo is, the zoo in City Park. So just north of the area of the Benjamites, kind of where the zoo is. So this is, this is the area they're talking about. So the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with him. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, show us how to get into the city so that we can see uh, and we will see that you are well treated. So they found a conspirator, a spy, that would give them information about how is it best to take the city. Because in those days, if it was a city of importance, whoever ran that city, and they were always called kings, so every city had their own king. Kings are not just national kings in biblical times. They really were, I'm in charge of this city. The city acted as its own little um, kind of country. And then they made allies with other cities. So the city of Bethel, which is in our modern-day understanding of where the Pueblo Zoo is, uh, they saw someone coming out of that city gate, which was protected by, obviously, walls of some sort, uh, stone in this case. And so they saw someone come out and said, hey, if you give us the skinny and tell us how to get into the zoo without anyone knowing, once we get there, we're going to treat you favorably. We're going to make sure that you're not killed, which is biggest of all the favors, but we're going to make sure that you're safe the entire time. So they find this guy. They make an arrangement with him in verse 25. So he showed them the secret way to get in, how to overcome the city gates, in this case, the city walls made out of stone. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. So Joshua and his tribes that went along with the tribe of, of, of Joseph, excuse me, went into the city, found that secret passageway in, gained victory, but spared the man and his family. And we're told a little bit about that man afterwards. It says in verse 26, Then he went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, uh, which is the name of that city today. Luz would have been sort of near Jericho, sort of near Abriendo and 25 in that area. And Luz just simply means the city of almond trees. And 
um, the Hittites, which happen to come up many, many times in Scripture, the Hittites have a very interesting backstory. The Hittites were founded by a guy named Hitt. No surprise. Hitt happened to be the great-grandson of Noah. His grandfather was Ham. His father, guess what, was Canaan. And so the Hittites were no friends of the Israelites because from as far back as the Hittites could remember, their family devotion was to the Canaanites because that was their dad. And they were a thorn in Israel's side forever and ever and ever. In fact, the Philistines, which comes up again and again and again, were also blood-related to the Canaanites. So that one sin that occurred back in Genesis 9, hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment, still tracked the curse of Noah upon them. May you be cursed, may you be cursed, may your descendants be cursed. May they be slaved and enslaved to the rest of my family forever and ever and ever. And they are now in the land that is possessed by their mortal enemies, the Hatfield and McCoys on steroids. So where does all this take us? Because remember I told you that at the very beginning, the book of Judges can be a somewhat depressing book. We've seen victories but we also see that there are some times where that victory isn't full, it isn't complete, it isn't realized yet. So I want to take us to Isaiah chapter 43. Because in Isaiah chapter 43, not only relates to Israel, but it relates to us, God's people, his church, the here and now. And in Isaiah chapter 43, it puts all of this into perspective. Listen to the words of Isaiah, written about a thousand years after the events in the book of Judges. It's a beautiful reminder even for us today. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. So he's talking about going through ordeals. Don't worry, I am your God, and as you go through those ordeals, those trials, those hardships, you will not be destroyed because of them. They will not overwhelm you and bring you down to where you are done. You might have hardships. You're still going to go through the rivers. You're still going to go through the flames, but they are not going to consume you and destroy you. He continues in verse 3. Why won't that happen? For I am the Jehovah, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Sheba for your stread. For your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, 
I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring, your, bring my sons from afar and your daughters from the ends of the earth. God says, I am going to make sure that you as a people are safe because I love you. Because I love you. It says, everyone who is called by my name in verse 7, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's talking about you. That's talking about you. It's not just talking about some ancient tribe in Israel. You are God's people. You are one of his chosen. You are one of his loved. You are one who he makes promises to that says, I will keep you safe when you go through a trial and a hardship. I will protect you. You will not be destroyed. It doesn't matter what you say. Oh, Tim, you don't understand what I'm going through. You have no idea what I'm expecting to go through. I may not know the details, but I can be 100% confident about this. The God whom we serve, the God whom we love, is a God who has made very specific promises to you. That in the end, through this trial, you will not be destroyed. You will not be overcome by it. You will not fall to it to your destruction. That God has such a desire for you that it doesn't matter where you feel your life is, he will bring it to a center and remind you, I'm your God. And more than that, Jesus reinforces, he's our Father. He ends in that verse 7. Everyone who is called on my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. God has called you by his name. In fact, we bear the name Christian because we want to be Christ-like. It's amazing. And then he tells us, I've created you for my glory, and I have formed you and made you. There is no more personal interest that God can show in you than what he's already shown by giving you his name, by giving you his son, by telling you, I've made you for my glory. Our response is one of reflecting the glory. Our response is to make sure that when people see us, they don't see us and pat us on the back for a good job done, but they see God. They see Christ in us. They see Christ through us. So I want you to stand. We're going to close in prayer. And as we do, I'm going to have the band come up and take us out this morning with a song. And this is a beautiful way in which we can reflect God's glory back to him through worship and song. Let's pray. Father, as we see all of these events taking place in the book of Judges so far, and we see all these victories and battles and some hardships that they face, thank you for reminding us that you are a God who has formed us, who has made us, who has called us by your name, who has redeemed us, and who keeps us safe through every trial and tribulation. To your glory, may you receive the song we are about to sing with a heart of thanksgiving and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You were the word at the beginning. 
Death could not hold you, the veil tore before you, you silenced the bows of sin and grave, and the heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, for you What a powerful name it is, the name of 
same emotion that you feel at singing about the greatness of his name goes with you from this place. Did you know that? It doesn't end here. Our worship and dependence upon him and our love for how he has overwhelmed us with his presence moves forward from this place. We can live in that presence every single day. And if you come back next week for the rest of Joshua Judges chapter 1, we're going to see even more of that on display. So have a great week, everyone. Do make sure that you kind of exit the building sooner rather than later, and have a great week. Bye.